I came across these last verses in 1 Timothy 6 that really stuck in my mind. And I thought to myself, it's just two verses. Can I really teach a whole message on just two verses? And then as God started to open His Word to me and open the thought process and so on, all of a sudden I had more in front of me than I thought. And God really used that time through the last three weeks to really help prepare for this message. And this message, the title that I've chosen has to do with the text that we're going to look at, Guardians of the Faith. We are to be guardians of the faith. In the beginning of Paul's second mission trip, Timothy was chosen by Paul to join himself and Silas. Timothy helped them preach in Philippi and Thessalonica. In Corinth, Paul chose Timothy to act as a go-between himself and the Thessalonian church. In Acts 19, Timothy is commissioned by Paul along with Erastus to prepare the churches in Macedonia for his arrival. While Paul was imprisoned the first time in Acts 20, Timothy comforted Paul in Rome, sending greetings to the Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Timothy traveled to Philippi to encourage them and then report back to Paul in Rome. After Paul's release, Timothy traveled with Paul to Ephesus where he stayed to confront the false teachers that had infiltrated the church. Paul then went on to Macedonia where he wrote the first letter to Timothy. His second letter came to Timothy while Paul was still imprisoned, as it says in 2 Timothy 1.8. Then Paul asks Timothy to come quickly because by this time Paul was facing his last days before he was to put to death. Timothy was Paul's friend, his confidant, his fellow worker in ministry, his diligent disciple for the faith. Paul continually reminds and commands Timothy to beware of false teachers, to protect the church from the invasion of false doctrine, and above all, to guard the faith. These are Paul's final instructions to his young but able minister. Paul had confidence in him that he would be ready for the challenge and would work in the ministry at hand. He was given the mantle of handling the truth accurately to faithfully instruct others and to protect the most important part, the gospel of Christ. First and Second Timothy, along with Titus, were and are written to and for the church and to its ministers as well, of those, as, well as those who are in the church. 1 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this reason I have sent you, Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Jesus Christ, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. 2 Timothy 1, That is why I am suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And finally, 2 Timothy 1.14, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. This morning we're going to be looking at the final verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
it was Paul's habit to sign his letters so that people of the church who were receiving these letters would know that it was from Paul himself and that he had written it. Typically, a secretary would have been employed and Paul would have dictated the words of the letter. And then at the end of the writing of the letter, Paul would have taken pen in hand to sign it himself. But what Paul often did when he did this was give some final phrases or sentences of exhortation to the people to whom he was writing. And that's what we'll be looking at today. Paul has taken up the pen in his own hand. The secretary has written down exactly what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had told the secretary to write down. But now Paul, in his own hand, is going to give one final exhortation to his son Timothy, and also to us. And then he's going to pronounce the benediction. And that's what we're going to focus in on this morning. But first, I want to lay a foundation. I want to lay a foundation of what this guarding the faith looks like. What is this faith that we're talking about? Well, we need to look at some of the characteristics of this valued deposit that Timothy had been entrusted because it is the very essence of the foundation of our faith. First, this truth has supernatural power. Secondly, this truth has supernatural promise. Third, this truth has supernatural protection. And fourth, this truth has supernatural provision. 2 Timothy 1.8-9 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For I am not, excuse me, Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Behind the gospel truth is power. How much power? God's word says, great power, Psalm 79. Psalm 89 says, strong power. Exodus 15, God's glorious power. Job 9, mighty power. Isaiah, everlasting power. Romans 9, sovereign power. And Job 5, unsearchable power. Jeremiah 10.12 says, It is He who made the earth by His power. Psalm 33.8-9 Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all its inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke it and it came to be. That's power, wouldn't you say? By the same powerful command, the Lord maintains this universe. I think it's interesting we keep sending telescopes farther and farther out into space and they keep finding out that the universe is bigger. It continues to grow as they discover it. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't care how long you're going to build a telescope or whatever, but you're never going to find the end of the universe because God's in control of that. Behind each miracle in God's Word is His power. He parted the sea. He brought food from heaven. In the New Testament, Jesus said, All power is given unto Me. He had power to cast out demons, to cure sicknesses and heal every illness. He had power to still the storm 
to walk on water. He even had power over death when he called Lazarus from the grave. But the greatest power that he has given is the power of salvation. He has the power to save, to transform, to change both now and for eternity those who trust in him. That's the power of the truth. Secondly, we have this truth has supernatural promise. In Romans 8, 37-39, a familiar verse is, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, height or depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now if we look at that verse, they're extremes. They're total extremes from one from another. Showing that nothing, no extreme, can separate us from God's love. Luke 1.37 says, For no promise from God will be impossible to fulfill. John 6.40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. Hebrews 9, For this reason He is the mediator of a new covenant since a death has occurred for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. To those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. I don't know if you've ever made a promise in your life, but it's hard to keep sometimes. And sometimes when we have our little children or grandchildren, they, they look at us and say, well, you promise, Papa, you promise? Well, I have to be careful because I can't always keep the promise that they're asking for. And I say, I'll try to do the best I can with God's help. So I want her both of my little ones to depend that my promise, their promise doesn't come from me, but it comes from God to focus on that. So this truth has supernatural promise. Third, this truth has supernatural protection. If we are faithless, He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We as God's confirmed children are sealed by his Holy Spirit. A seal impressed on a document gives Undoubted validity to the contract within. So the sense of the adoption through the Spirit at the same time of regeneration assures those believers that they are now God's children and heirs to His kingdom. I I didn't know this. I I had heard this, but I, I looked into it that the seal that was placed on the rock of the tomb where Christ was buried had the idea that no one except Rome or something greater than Rome could break that seal. Amazing that the seal was broken by someone greater than Rome. 
So this truth has supernatural power, supernatural protection, supernatural promise. And finally, this truth has supernatural provision. Ephesians 2.8, familiar verse, For by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Timothy 1, saying it is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The Gospel provides the forgiveness of sin, a full pardon from the penalty of what we deserve. Not only forgiveness, but also new life. A transformed life from this, from the inside out, unlike how the world's philosophy tries to change us from the outside in. This life is also eternal. That someday we'll be in glory in the presence of our Lord. He has given us the Holy Spirit to guide, to direct, to give us understanding. At the time of our salvation, we were given everything we needed. And that was given by God's unmerited favor called grace. We have been called so we can be sent. I love what one commentator says. He says, our conversion becomes our vocation. I like that. This is a valued deposit. This is the deposit that Paul was talking to Timothy about, about entrusting him with this valued deposit for Timothy to guard and protect. This is the power of the gospel. In 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued an executive order, number 6102, which outlawed the private ownership of gold coins. I remember this because I remember my dad telling me that his father used to have some $20 gold pieces and had to hide them because he wanted to retain them. But every American citizen was forced to sell these back to the Federal Reserve. As a result, the value of gold held by the Federal Reserve increased from $4 billion to $12 billion. And that seems like such a small amount when you have individuals who have twice that much. That was in 1933. It took four years. And the gold reserve was so large, they didn't have a place to store it. So in 1936, the U.S. Treasury Department began construction of the United States Bullion Depository known as Fort Knox. And the gold vault was completed in December 1936 at a cost of $560,000. Isn't that amazing? The first gold shipments were made from January to July in 1937. It would take some 500 rail cars that were sent by registered mail to fill the treasury. Below the fortress-like structure lies the gold vault lined with granite walls and protected by a blast-proof door weighing 22 tons. Members of the depository staff must dial separate combinations known only to them beyond the main vault door. The most famous, if not the largest, vault door uh, came from the federal government in 1935 
And both the vault door and emergency door were 21 inches thick, made of the latest torch and drill-resistant material known. The main door weighed 20 tons, and the vault casing was 25 inches thick. Now, you would say that that's protected, wouldn't you? You would say that that's well-guarded, wouldn't you? There's more. The different military amount of uh, different categories of military that were in this one area totaled 30,000 soldiers, along with tanks, helicopters, artillery, and so on. Okay? All of the gold in the deposit, if pure, could form a cube 20 foot by 20 foot by 20 foot. Now that's about almost as tall as a ceiling over to the side of here and back towards the stairs. A pure cube of solid gold. I would say that we as the world, as humanity, put a lot of value in gold, wouldn't you? If we're willing to take that much gold and do that much to protect it, and we are given something that is worth even more than gold and silver. How much more are we to protect it and guard it? At the close of the letter, Paul summarizes his instructions to Timothy in a personal appeal. Let's go there. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. The language Paul uses sheds some additional light on the nature of Timothy's mission and the gravity of the situation. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The NIV says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. In this brief benediction, the Apostle Paul sums up two phrases of all his concern for the integrity of the gospel and all of his horror and the danger of deviating from the truth of God's word. He gives an exhortation not simply to Timothy, we will see, but to all of us in this exhortation in these two small verses. As we look at those verses, Paul says, first, to retain the truth. Secondly, refrain from worldly and empty talk. Third, realize the danger of false teaching. And fourth, to rely on God's grace. Those four in these little verses are Paul's final exhortation to Timothy in the first letter. They kind of sum up the total of his focus throughout both of his letters, and Titus as well. Let's look at the first. Retain the truth. In verse 20, Paul says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Here Paul is telling Timothy, retain the truth which I have entrusted to you. He's telling Timothy that he has the responsibility to value, protect, defend, and retain the truth of the gospel. And notice how he speaks to Timothy in this little word, O. Some of your Bibles have it, some of your Bibles don't. At this point, it seems that Paul has picked up the pen himself. It's a personal 
benediction to his brother Timothy. That little word, oh, has been filled with emotion, exhortation, and command. He's exclaiming and repeating his concern that Timothy would hold fast to the truth. And he says to him, guard what has been entrusted to you. If you don't know it, reading through the books of First and Second Timothy, Paul is serious about doctrine. He is serious about holding on to these great truths. He is serious about protecting this truth. If you turn ahead with me to 2 Timothy 1, 13, a couple pages over. 2 Timothy 1, 13. We have another resounding exhortation by Paul. It says, Retain the, sound, the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Did you know that each one of us who have been born again carry around a treasure that's worth more than that 20-foot cube of gold? We put so much emphasis on that that we lose sight. That we've been given a treasure that is beyond this world. Many of us have witnessed that in lives of people we have seen changed. We have also witnessed how gold can change people's lives. Sometimes they put that uh, thing on TV, people who won the lottery and how their lives have been changed. 80 to 90% of them are, have no money left. They've gone out and they've spent it, they've squandered it, and, and emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, they're a mess. God is saying just the opposite. My treasure is not going to mess you up. It's going to build you up. First of all, this translation is guard what has been entrusted to your care. Literally means guard the deposit. This phrase, which in the New Testament is limited to First and Second Timothy only, and it comes from a former, uh, rather formal procedure, which is called a sacred trust. In the current Greek, Roman, and Jewish societies, one could securely pass some commodity to another party by entrusting it to an authorized agent. Somewhat similar to today. Some commentators interpret the commodity, in this case, to be Timothy's ministry as a whole. But as the contrast with the false teaching here and in 2 Timothy, it's more likely that Paul means the faith or the gospel that was under attack by false teachers. Secondly, Paul's language emphasizes continuity. Timothy was to carry on with the mission given by Christ to the apostles much earlier. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. 
Wow. In, in a nutshell, there's the gospel. Third, the task is a sacred one. Paul's choice of deposits, the word deposit, confirms this. God has planned that the evangelist's mission be executed by the proclamation of the gospel. Gospel. The mission depends on the gospel message. Consequently, God's servants in each generation must guard it. That is, faithfully proclaim and protect it. doesn't mean we guard it to the point where we don't share it means we guard it from the infiltration of false gospels. The same language is also repeated in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. It says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. Guard that good deposit entrusted to you. There it is again. As for all of us, Timothy didn't invent this faith. He received it. It was first passed on to him from his grandmother and from his mother. And then Paul taught this truth to him. Timothy didn't invent this as he was going along. He had received a message. He had received the truth of the gospel from God through Paul. And Timothy is encouraging him to hold on to it. The message is a valuable but a vulnerable one. One Commentator writes, Because the, the gospel is an invisible message, it is thus vulnerable to attack. Jesus labeled Satan as the father of lies. Satan's agents are wolves in sheep's clothing in their efforts to infect the gospel with lies. We ought therefore to pay the greatest attention to the truth that we have heard and not allow ourselves to drift away from it. For if the message given through angels proved authentic, so that defiance of it and disobedience to it received appropriation and retribution. How shall we escape if we refuse to pay proper attention to the great salvation which is offered? Another commentator says this, says commenting on the passage, what is meant here by the deposit? What has been entrusted? He answers it this way, that which is committed to you not that which is invented by you. The deposit is that which you have received, not that that you have devised. It is not a thing of your wit, but of your learning. It is not a thing of private assumption, but of teaching. It is not a thing brought forth from you, but a thing brought to you. You are not its author, but its keeper. You are not its leader, but its follower. The Christian message is not something which the church's minister works out for himself, and then comes before you and gives you his idea of what that is. Paul is saying to Timothy, you have been entrusted with something far more precious than any family heirloom, any gold, any silver, anything of worth. You have been entrusted with the word of salvation, the word of truth, which is the very revelation of God himself. Timothy, value it, protect it, defend it, retain it. Many times it's easy for us to sort change the significance of our having this entrusted truth. We take it for granted sometimes. But if we don't protect it, it'll be in danger. Not because of God's Word, because it'll last forever, but because of our inadequacy and our unwillingness to stand for what is right. 
You know the story of how people can tell where counterfeits are made. We've heard this many times. Is What they do is they just inundate you with real bills over and over and over so that when a counterfeit comes across, you can spot it really quick. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy over and over and over. Go through the truth so that when a counterfeit pops up, you'll see it. You'll know it. You'll identify it. Paul kind of likens us to various laborers for the gospel. I love this. In 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7 and 20 and 21, I have that on your outline. He says, in fact, I'm just going to turn there because I want to read that part so we get the context of what we're saying here. <clears throat> it says, You therefore, my son, be a strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlists him as a soldier. And also if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops, Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all that he remembers. And then finally, But in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. What is he saying? Well, let's look at the first one. Soldiers. They're single-minded with a task at hand responding to the orders of their commanding officer. A farmer. A farmer labors intensely and consistently to bring forth a good crop. Athletes. Athletes train continuously, adhering to the rules of the waste to prepare. Workers. We are to rightly divide the truth of God correctly and handling it as He has willed us to. And vessels. Be careful what we put in as not to spoil the purity of the word. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and opposing, opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. First, we are retained. Secondly, refrain from worldly and empty talk. Some translations say babblings. Paul doesn't stop there. He says, on in verse 20, he says, refrain from something. Timothy, guard that's been entrusted to you, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. He tells Timothy, in other words, that he is to refrain from being entangled in empty and speculative theological nonsense. He's to avoid this kind of empty and speculative teaching. He is to avoid this kind of vain speaking, which is theological or otherwise. There were some people at that time who in their own minds were promoting a new idea. A new idea that they thought that they were wiser than Timothy, wiser than Paul, certainly wiser than the mere Christians in the congregation. They were intellectual. They had insights that none other could grasp. They knew the truth that nobody could understand. And they were given an ear. Not unlike today. 
Turn on your TV and look at some of the preachers that we have. Go to the internet and look up some of the people that you've heard of. And you will see all kinds of things happening. Elitists that say they have a corner on certain truths. At the end, I'm going to give you the simplicity of the gospel. It is no more elitist than what we have already been looking at. The simplicity of it. We are inundated with bizarre expressions of God's supernatural powers entrusted by a chosen few. We get emotionally attached through experiences. We leave logic and reason out of the process. We have major religions that claim to be Christian. But their Jesus is far from the Jesus of the Bible that we know. They have robbed Him of His deity, His divinity, and His dignity. He has become a means to an end. A dispenser of grace without the acknowledgement of holiness. We have created multitudes of gods in our own images to cater to our own needs and our own wants. Why wouldn't we? He has become a God of love and tolerance, but not a God of holiness and justice. We have dethroned the King of kings and the Lord of lords to, the level of, to our levels so we, can, seal, can, we excuse me, can feel comfortable and unaffected by the sin we have. That's not the Jesus of this gospel. So we are to retain the deposit. We are to refrain from worldly talk. We are to recognize false knowledge. It says, O Timothy, again, guard that has been, what has been entrusted to you in avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Paul's description reveals another clue to its nature. Falsely called knowledge is a reference to uh, the catchword of the, the gnosis idea. This was indeed a misnomer, for its message contradicted the gospel. One specific point of contradiction presents itself in their belief concerning the resurrection of believers. Their choice of the word knowledge to describe their doctrine is no sure connection to later Gnosticism. It does reveal, however, what or that what one knew rather than what one determined was more spiritually elite. From this came the negative view of the physical world and other perversions of behavior. In correction, Paul used another form of this word, epignosis, in reference to the knowledge of God, which is a deeper personal relationship type knowledge. Not just head knowledge, but deeper than that. So Paul is making a distinction between those two when he says falsely called knowledge. Paul isn't angry because it's knowledge. He's angry because it's false knowledge. He's not saying, well, we shouldn't get hung up about what you believe. It's just how you live. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that what is being claimed is wrong. It's false. Paul is telling Timothy that these types of things must be avoided. We as ministers of the gospel must not become entangled with these types of arguments, logic, and opposing contradictions. 
Paul is saying, don't spend a minute of your time meditating on these. It's like looking at that bill that is real. If we spent more time looking at the other, we would be caught up in the falsehood. But he wants us to focus on the reality. And then he says, realize something. Look at verse 21. He says, we have claimed that some have this false knowledge. And they have professed faith in Christ. But they've gone astray. Some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Paul is saying that there are some people in the congregation at Ephesus who have professed faith in Christ. They have professed to believe the Christian truths which have been taught by Paul and the apostles, but yet, because they became entangled in false teachings, they have gone astray. Their curiosity got the best of them and led them away. Paul says false doctrine is destructive. We must not allow any infiltration of false knowledge, false doctrine. If we stray away from God's Word, we're getting into some dangerous areas. That's why it's always better to stay within the confines of the book. So we are to retain and guard the deposit, refrain from senseless talk and contradictions, recognize false knowledge, and finally, we are to rely. Rely on what? Rely on God's grace. Paul's not done At the end of verse 21, he concludes this and says, Grace be with you, in which he calls on Timothy to rely upon the grace of God. In fact, he's calling upon the whole congregation to rely on the grace of God. This unmerited favor. This little phrase indicates the greatest blessing of all. God's favor to us through Christ. His blessing on those who are undeserving of that blessing purchased at the cost of the death of His Son. Paul is saying, grace be with you. But we don't pick it up in our English. What he's really saying is grace be with all of you in a plural sense. He's telling all the congregation, all those who are believers, God's grace to be with you. He's given this benediction to the whole congregation. It is yet another indication that this book has two audiences in mind. Like I said before, Paul is talking with Timothy. Timothy is talking to the congregation. It is important for us as a congregation, as we look through this, to realize and understand, first of all, there's power in the gospel. There's power, unbelievable power, as we went through. We are to protect. We are to hold. We are to guard. Because when we receive Christ, He deposited that in us. You know, when the world passes away and everything burns away, nothing will be left. No gold, no silver, No cars, no houses, no land, no real estate. All of that will be taken away. 
And what we'll be left with is our relationship with Christ or not. This truth has supernatural power. Retain, protect, defend. This truth has supernatural promise. Refrain from useless worldly talk and contradictions. This truth has supernatural protection. Recognize those false teaching and meaningless intellectual debates. This truth has supernatural provision. Rely on God's unmerited favor called grace. I told you before that I was going to, at the end, give you the simplicity of the gospel. Many times we're given the gospel and we get hung up on words, phrases. I want you to think about this, though, in its most logical, simplest form. Man must recognize that he is imperfect. This is called sin. God's standard is perfection. This is without sin. God has already judged man's imperfections. Man must humble himself and agree with God that he will be judged for his imperfections. Man could never do anything to, God's, to gain God's favor, no matter how many good things he has done or by being the best he could be. Jesus Christ gave His life as payment to God for man's sin. That is the one and only perfect thing that is accepted by God. Man is not God and cannot save himself from this pending judgment. He must turn away from his old life and have a willingness to allow God to change him in his new life. Jesus took the blame of man's sin And they were judged on a wooden cross made by man's hands, condemned by men's words, and killed by men's pride. But Jesus defeated even the death, the death of a cross, and rose on the third day to give new life, for He is the only way to a holy God. Man must believe and accept this gift of grace to attain this new life. Man must trust in Christ alone for his truth to live this new life. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to those who have accepted this in order to bring God glory and honor to this new life and for those new lives to be lights to this world. I think that's pretty simple. Who in this room is perfect? Not one of us. No matter what it is. If God wants perfection, you don't have it. Simple. God says there's a payment for imperfection. Death. God says if you don't become perfect, I won't accept you. Simple. But the great thing is is God made a way for us to be perfect. It's in Christ. That's the message of the gospel. That's the simplicity of it. That's the foundation of it. The question for some of you here this morning, are you living up to God's standard of perfection? 
If you are, I want to talk to you afterwards. What are you doing to gain God's favor? What are you doing now to gain gain God's favor? Knowing this, understanding this in a very simple, logical way, what are you doing now to gain God's favor? Simple. Knowing what I just said, hearing what I just said, what will you do in the future to gain God's favor? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the message of Your Word. Lord, help us be guardians of that faith that You've entrusted to those of us who call upon Your name. Lord, we are so grateful that by Your grace we have been saved. It's nothing that we have done. Nothing that we can do. Nothing that we'll ever be able to do. We need to come to the understanding of that. It's simple. It's very simple, Lord. I pray that Your Spirit would just speak to the hearts that are hearing my voice. But Lord, that You would speak to their hearts in such a way that if they don't even now see the reality of the simplicity of that message, God, work on them later today, tomorrow, this week. God, that they would come to an understanding of the simplicity of Your Gospel. Lord, we thank You. We ask You to bless this time. Lead us now, Father, as Dan closes out in a song of worship. Father, of Your greatness and Your power. In Jesus' name, Amen.